Good morning, everyone. I am happy to see you all here. Let's stand and worship God together. The songs that we chose are ones that reflect um, God's character and um, the strength that we receive through him and why it's all going to be okay. So let's stand and worship God together.
Thank you for your singing. Good morning, everyone. Wow, what a, a blessing to hear that music this morning. You picked fantastic songs. That last song, Holy, 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 I remember that when I was this tall, <laughs> singing it with my mother. Yeah. Thank you. It was good. And how true that is, even more today than ever, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and... Uh, in the midst of all that's going on, we need to rely on him more than ever. So uh, it's been a fantastic week, week. The weather's been great. I think, as far as I can remember, it's the nicest fall we've had in quite a while. I don't know if I'm wrong, but it seems like it. And the uh, colors are beautiful. It's just been a good week. and. Uh, it's good to see you all here. It's so nice that we can still come and worship together like this, even though we're under some restrictions. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful morning worship. Thank you for the, uh, the gals that uh, minister to us in, in song. Just thank you for that. Just pray that you'll be with us this morning as we uh, look into your word. Just be with Pastor Glenn as he uh, ministers to us. And I just pray that you'll open our minds to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Our uh, call to worship this morning. If you want to read it together with me. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall give thanks to thee, O Lord, and thy godly one shall bless thee. That's Psalms 145, 8-10. Scripture reading, Ruth. Is this first second Thessalonians or second? First. Oh, second. second. Oh. Practice the wrong one. <laughs> Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not, be, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may re be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. <clears throat> and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy the splendor of his coming and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, 
They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sent them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought also to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace, give us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. The wrong chapter, you did very well. So thank you very much for that, appreciate that. And as you look into that chapter, let's just, first of all, take a few moments to ask God to guide our thoughts as we go through it. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us, and we know that every part of it uh, is of you, and every part of it is you speaking to us. Every part of it is important, because it has something to say to us that we need to hear. Even some of those that are a little harder to understand, we, we know that this is your word to us. So Lord, we ask that you would guide our thoughts as we go through this, as we open ourselves to what you're saying. May you, by the Holy Spirit indwelling us, may we all hear what it is you are saying to each of us personally through this, this morning. And help me, Lord, just to speak it as you would have it spoken. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> see from the title of the sermon that's in your bulletins, we're going to be talking about the end times this morning. That's where our study in 2 Thessalonians takes us uh, for this morning as we look into this chapter that was just read. Um, it's a bit difficult to find some appropriate humor regarding the end times, but I did come across one joke that I thought might work. Uh, it's actually more a joke about politicians than it is about the end times. <laughs> but seeing we just came through a federal election, I, I thought I'd do it. <laughs> so here it is. Seems like God is fed up with humanity, its sins and its vanities and with politicians. And he decided to end it. So he brought together all the heads of states and announced to them that he's going to destroy the human race within 24 hours. He told them, I leave it, I will leave you the pleasure of announcing this to your respective peoples. So the first to speak is Joe Biden, and here's his address to the American people. Beloved people, I have one item of good news and one of bad news. The good news is that God exists. He spoke to me, but we already knew that. The bad news is that our great nation, our great dream will disappear in 24 hours. This is the will of God. Castro brought together all the people of Cuba, and he said, Compatriots, Cuban people, I have two items of bad news. The first is that God exists. <laughs> he spoke to me. Yes, I saw him. The second bad news is that this wonderful revolution for which we have fought will be over. It is God's will. Justin Trudeau came on national TV to speak to Canadians. <laughs> Here's what he said. Today is a very special day for us. <laughs> Why? I'll tell you. I have two items of good news to announce. 
First is, I am a messenger of God. <laughs> he spoke to me in person. <laughs> the second is that within 24 hours, yes, you heard well, within 24 hours, the problem of the COVID pandemic will be solved. The financial crisis will be solved. There will be no more carbon emissions. The climate change issue will be solved. There will be no more gun violence and no more problems with divisions within our nation. <laughs> I will keep my promise. I am here for you. <laughs> it's an interesting topic, the end times. <laughs> there are so many speculations out there, so many interpretations of what the Bible says about the subject. And over the years, many predictions as to the date when Jesus will return and bring the world to an end. There have been so many predictions made. And all of those predictions that include a date have turned out to be wrong. I came across a quote from that great theologian, Dolly Parton. <laughs> and she said, God knows when the end of time will come, not some fanatic. The world will end someday, but the end of the world and the end of time are two different things. And she's probably closer to the truth than many statements that you come across. At any rate, we're continuing on in our series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Just a short three-chapter letter, so it'll be a short series. Uh, we started last week looking at chapter 1. Those of you who were here last week will remember. Chapter 1's kind of introductory to this book, with Paul expressing thankfulness for this church, that they were standing firm in their faith despite the persecutions that they were facing. And not only standing firm, they were actually really growing in their faith and growing in their love. And we saw last Sunday there from that some good teaching on the relationship between persecutions and afflictions and the growth of faith and love and how those two go together. Now the reason for Paul and his companions writing this letter becomes clear in chapter 2. Apparently, this church was in a bit of a kerfuffle. It seems they had received some sort of a message or a report from some source who claimed that a claim came from the Apostle Paul and that message was that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul is writing this letter to correct that misinformation. In the first letter that he wrote to this church, 1 Thessalonians, Paul did address the subject of Jesus' return to gather all Christians to himself. The new believers in this church, and they were all very new believers, uh, they were expecting Jesus to come back in a very short time. But as time had gone on, some of their people had died. And they were worried about those who had died, that they might miss out on what Jesus had in store for them. And so Paul addressed that concern in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in so doing, he gave us the most comprehensive teaching we have in the New Testament on the event called the rapture of the church. Uh, meaning that Jesus will return and gather to himself all believers, both dead and alive, gather them to himself in the air, and from then on we'll always be with the Lord. But now, after Paul had written that to the Thessalonian church, now there was this false report that the day of the Lord had come. Which would mean that Jesus had returned and gathered his children to himself. But they were still there. So these people were kind of shaken and alarmed and confused because of this. And so Paul is writing here to correct this misinformation. And he tells these believers that no, he had never sought or said or taught or wrote any such thing. And that no, the day of the Lord had not come. And then he proceeds here in this chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2, to give some further teaching about the end time so they would have it clear in their minds and not be swayed by false reports or fraudulent letters. So let's get into the teaching of, of this chapter. In the interest of full disclosure, I personally favor the premillennial, pre-tribulational view of the end times. I feel this interpretation is the most consistent with the literal, straightforward reading of what the Bible says. But when it comes to the end times, what the Bible says is many times 
of a general kind of big picture nature. And at least some of the teaching on the end times uses figurative and allegorical language. So it's really difficult to be totally dogmatic about any view of the end times that good evangelical Bible scholars have come up with. Uh, like I said, I feel the pre-mill, pre-trip view is the most consistent with the straightforward reading of the Bible. The other views tend to spiritualize and take as figurative some passages that I don't think is really warranted. So that's my view, and that's what I will preach, and that's what I will teach. But I'm not going to be totally dogmatic about it. Very good evangelical Bible scholars who are very humble and godly people have taken other views. But that's the view that I hold. And that's what I'm going to preach and teach. And I see this passage as quite consistent with the pre-mill, pre-trib interpretation. So anyway, let's, let's get into it. We need to have a basic understanding of how the end times will unfold. And the study of the teachings of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 here will help us to gain that understanding. So four things I'd like to bring out, four teachings that I would like to bring out of this chapter. Number one, the order of events. The order of events. So to explain to these new Christians in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had not come, Paul in these first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians 2 go through some major things that will occur and in, as he does that kind of gives us a bit of an order of events. Because this can't happen until that happens. That can't happen until this happens. So we can kind of put together a bit of an order of events. So first we need to remind ourselves of what some of these terms mean. We went through it back when we were in 1 Thessalonians 4. But let's remind ourselves of that. First of all, here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Paul talks about Jesus coming and our gathering together with him. Or to him. Our gathering together to him. That refers to what we call the rapture of the church. That's what Paul talked about back in 1 Thessalonians 4. Same thing. That word rapture, we use the word rapture. That comes from a Latin word. That was used to translate the Greek word for being caught up. So that Greek word that means being caught up, the Latin used the word to translate that, which we get our word rapture from. So that's kind of the convoluted, why we call it the rapture of the church. So Paul is saying, regarding Jesus' return and our being gathered to him, don't be alarmed, verse 2 went on to say, don't be alarmed by this fake news. <laughs> they had fake news back then too. <laughs> by this fake news you've received that the day of the Lord has already come. So that brings us to the second term we need to define. The day of the Lord. Always in scripture, the day of the Lord refers to an extended period of time at the end when God unleashes his judgment on this world for its sinfulness. It's an extended period of time, time of judgment on the world. It's called the day of the Lord. It'll be a time of great tribulation and trials and upheaval and so on. This is talked about several places throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, the day of the Lord. And I see no reason to see that Paul is referring to anything else here. The fake news was that this day of the Lord had come. And that's causing great alarm and confusion in this Thessalonian church. Now they, as we know from both these letters, they're going through some significant persecutions as a church. And you can see, perhaps, how they might think, well, maybe this persecution we're going through, maybe... This is part of what will happen in the day of the Lord. Maybe we're in it. But if that's so, what about Jesus returning to gather us to himself? Paul seemed to indicate back in 1 Thessalonians 4 that that will happen before the day of the Lord. But if the day of the Lord has come, then did we miss out on being caught up to be with Jesus? Is that even real? Did we misunderstand Paul? So you can see the reason for the alarm and the confusion that this fake news caused this congregation of new believers in Thessalonica. Paul goes on then, verse 3 and following. He says, the day of the Lord won't come unless the apostasy, my translation says apostasy, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. 
a man of lawlessness. We'll look at that person in the next point. <laughs> of note now, it seems that this apostasy and this man of lawlessness kind of go together. And it makes sense to see that this apostasy, which is a great rebellion against God, will set up a situation where this man of lawlessness will reveal himself and set himself up as a great leader. And looking at verse 7, even as Paul was writing this, he said the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already there in human society, be, kind of behind the scenes, kind of flying under the radar. This mystery of lawlessness, I think that's the sin nature that's in all of us, constantly nudging us toward evil. But it's now being restrained. <coughs> but when the restrainer is removed, it will totally and very quickly, this mystery of lawlessness will totally and very quickly take over, setting the stage for this man of lawlessness to come in and take over. That will happen at the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's great apostasy which sets up this man of lawlessness. The two kind of go together. Verse 5 is interesting. Paul reminds these believers that he had told them these things while he was there with them. So we know from that that Paul had given them at least some teaching on the end times while he was there preaching the gospel to them and starting the church there. He had taught them about the end times. Then it says in verse, verse 6, and you know what restrains him now. <laughs> so that in the time he will be revealed. He's talking about the man of lawlessness. You know what restrains him now. Interesting. There is something restraining this man of lawlessness now from being revealed. And they, the Thessalonian Christians, they knew what it was. So obviously Paul had told them about it when he was there with them. The, our problem is uh, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what that is. What had Paul told them about this restrainer? Not recorded for us, either in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians. So that in some way hinders us from knowing without, or knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt how to put this all together. Wish I could have known what Paul said to those Thessalonians back when he was there about the end times, but we just don't have full record of it. But, let's go on to verse 7. Let's read it. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And here the restrainer is referred to as he. So it's a person. It gives us at least a hint. Uh, who is restraining or preventing this man of lawlessness from being revealed? Who is that? This man of lawlessness who will take advantage and promote such evil and rebellion against God. Who's holding him back? Well, we could get into all kinds of arguments, whatever, but I'll just summarize for you, or I'll just give you my conclusion. It seems to me that the best answer to this is that this is the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I said earlier, some would take different views, but... I think it's the power of the Holy Spirit. During the church age, which is what we are now in, the church age is, this age from the time that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, till the time that Jesus comes back to gather Christians to himself, that's all called the church age. So now during the church age, the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians. That's what happens. That's what we're taught in the New Testament. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, Accept him as your savior. Repent of your sin and you know, become a Christian. All that. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and lives within you and works through you. So during the church age, the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians. So worldwide, there are Christians all over the world, millions of them, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These Christians make up the church of Jesus Christ. What the Bible talks about, the, the whole church of God, the, the universal church. The collective force of these Christians, indwelt 
by the person of the Holy Spirit, are a great force of good in our world and a great force of holding evil in check. So it seems to me that this restrainer is the Holy Spirit working through Christians that he indwells. So, when you put it all together, this man of lawlessness and this great rebellion or apostasy won't happen until the restrainer is removed. And if this restrainer is the Holy Spirit as he indwells Christians, how is he going to be removed? Well, <laughs> the rapture of the church. <laughs> Our being caught up out of this world when Jesus returns and catches all Christians up out of this world to be with Jesus for eternity would be that removal of this restraining force of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, then it seems to me that's the most natural and best interpretation of this then this is what the order of events will be, if this is right. First, the removal of the restrainer, which I think is Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That means the rapture of the church, when Jesus removes us out of this world. That's the first thing that's going to happen. Second, the revealing of the man of lawlessness, coupled by a great apostasy or a great rebellion against God. And this man of lawlessness will do all kinds of wickedness and have the power of Satan behind him. That's, where's that verse? It, uh, yeah, for four, five, six in there someplace. <laughs> and leading all people in rebellion against God and leading actually in demanding to be worshipped himself. He will demand that he himself be worshipped. And then third, the return of Jesus to this earth to put an end to this man of lawlessness, verse 8, and to deal with Satan. So that's the order of events, as I see it. Secondly, who's this man of lawlessness? The man of lawlessness. Who exactly is this guy? Some translations say man of sin, others say man of evil. We won't go into them, but several other passages talk about a great evil man coming at the end times. He's called Antichrist in 1st and 2nd John, and 3rd John. He has other names in other passages. But you put all the teaching of the scripture together, he will come first as a peacemaker and as a savior for the predicament the world is in, but will very quickly show himself to be a totally evil person. He will lead many people of this earth into great rebellion against God. He will be controlled by Satan. And through the power of Satan, he will perform great wonders and miracles, which will deceive people into following him. His great desire, because he's controlled by Satan, is to be worshipped by the people as God. And as time goes on, that's what he will demand. This person is referred to in the book of Daniel, he's referred to in the book of Matthew, he's referred to in the book of Revelation. By the way, this man of lawlessness is described here in these verses. By the way he's described here, it, it's obvious it's the same person as his Antichrist described in other passages. Same person. He exalts himself above every god or object of worship, and he actually seats himself in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what verse 4 tells us. Kind of by the way, but... If he does that, is that talking about the temple in Jerusalem? He's going to seat himself in the temple of God. I don't know what else it could be. That would be how these Thessalonians would have read it. And if that is so, then this temple will have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem before this. So there's some fodder for you to chew on. How's that going to happen? <laughs> anyway, that's just by the way. Verse 9. This man of lawlessness will act in accord with the activity of Satan, and these acts will include power and signs and false wonders. So by the power of Satan, he will apparently be able to do some things that will appear to be miraculous. But they'll be false wonders, because they're satanic. But, verse 10 says, the effect will be a great deception 
of wickedness that will deceive those who refuse to receive the truth. So that's this man of lawlessness. He's the Antichrist. Same person talked about in many other passages of Scripture. And very shortly after the restrainer is removed, which I believe is us as Christians are caught up in this world to meet our Lord in the air, the rapture. Very shortly after that, this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed, and not until. Third thing I want to look at, third teaching, is the deluding influence. The deluding influence, that's what my translation says, looking at verse 11 and 12. Here, some translations say strong delusion, some say powerful delusion, some say greatly deceived or great deception. The end result of Antichrist deceiving people and people willingly rejecting the truth that could save them and allowing themselves to be deceived and choosing to follow him, the end result of that is that God will send this deluding influence, this powerful delusion, this great deception on them to cement that deception in their minds. There will come a point during this period of time known as the day of the Lord when hordes of people will willingly and continually reject the truth that could save them and instead go after the false lies and false miracles and deceptive tactics of the Antichrist. And then God will come to the point where he will say, okay, you've made your choice. And he will send this powerful delusion or deception on them so they will believe what is false and their deceptions will be cemented in their minds and they will be convinced that the false is the truth and the truth is false and they will not change. God does this, verse 12 says, so that all who reject the truth and took pleasure in wickedness will be judged. Their fate is sealed. It's much the same as what took place back in the book of Exodus, where God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Much the same thing. Pharaoh rejected God long enough, and God deemed it to be enough, and so he hardened his heart in that rejection of God. We need to take this truth seriously, friends. And again, this is kind of, by the way, God is merciful, God is very patient, but when we willingly and knowingly over and over and over again reject him and reject the truth and choose over and over again to choose evil, there will come a time when God will say, enough. And your heart will be hardened and you will never repent. But here in the end times, this deluding influence will come upon a great mass of people who continually reject God and continually reject Jesus Christ and choose instead to worship Antichrist. Now this deluding influence from God will come over them and they will be sealed for judgment. Please take note here of who Paul is talking to. Who is Paul talking about here? Who's going to come under this great delusion? Well, the people who rejected God. The people who rejected Jesus. The people who chose the way of wickedness. People who turned from Jesus and instead worship Antichrist. That's who he's talking about. This is not talking about Christians. This is not talking about people who have made the choice to worship Jesus and accept him. This deluding influence from God does not come upon his people. It comes upon the wicked followers of Antichrist in the end times. So just remember that. Fourthly and finally, the comfort and the challenge for us as Christians. The comfort and the challenge for us as Christians. That's the rest of this chapter, verse 13 through 17. It is always the case throughout the scriptures that any discussion of the end times concludes with an application of how that knowledge should motivate us to live our lives for God. So Paul expresses thanks that these Thessalonians had turned to God. God had chosen them. They had placed their faith in the truth of the gospel. They were sanctified. They would gain the glory of Jesus Christ. This is in stark contrast to the evil people Paul had just finished describing. So Paul, talking to these Christians at Thessalonica, he urges them, 
Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in what you were taught when we were with you. Stand by the teaching that we gave to you by way of the letters we write or wrote to you. Stand firm in that. So what Paul is saying is that to them is don't fall for those false reports or teachings about the end times. Don't fall for that fake news. Stand firm in what you were taught because that's the gospel and that is the truth. Hold to the traditions, that being the gospel message that Paul and Silas and Timothy had taught them. Paul calls them here traditions. Hold to those traditions that we taught you. And verse 16 and 17 is a prayer then that Paul prayed for them. He prayed that God would comfort them. That they, these people were distraught by this false report. But now that they knew the truth, Paul prayed that they would be comforted by that, by the truth. God loves us. God has given us eternal comfort as Christians. That's good hope that we have. And Paul prays that they would be strengthened for every good work that God had called them to do there in Thessalonica. So there is here both a comfort and a challenge in these verses for the Thessalonian believers and, and for us. The comfort is that we who are Christians, we are chosen for salvation, we've placed our faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been sanctified, we are loved by God, and he is giving us eternal comfort. See that there? Verse 16, eternal comfort. Comfort will never end. We are his for eternity. None of the bad stuff talked about here in this chapter need concern us as Christians. We'll be saved from that. That's the comfort. The challenge is to hold firm to the truth and not be shaken by false teaching. The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is contained in the word of God. The Bible is the only source of absolute truth that there is in the world. Other sources may contain some truth, but they are not absolute truth. Only the Bible is absolute truth. So we need to hold fast to that truth. And I've mentioned it before, but I keep, because it concerns me, I keep coming back to it. In this day of technology and social media that we're living in, this is becoming a real problem, in my opinion. So many people, including those who call themselves Christians, do not go to the Bible to find truth. They get their truth from Google, or YouTube, or Facebook, or some other social media outlet. And when they have a question, the first thing they do is they go to those sources. And much of it is fake news. They all have their own particular agenda to push. Friend, the only source of absolute truth we have is the Bible. And we need to spend way more time prayerfully reading the Bible and coming to an understanding of what it teaches than we do on social media. Don't be alarmed by false reports, even though they claim to be from God. If it's contrary to what the Bible teaches, it's false and it's not from God. That's the challenge for us. Stand firm in the teachings of the Word of God. So therefore we see from this chapter some good teachings that give us a glimpse into the end times. They are, first of all, there was an order of events, rapture, lawlessness, antichrist, delusion, return of Christ, to destroy antichrist. <laughs> that's kind of the order of events presented in this chapter. Secondly, the man of lawlessness, that's antichrist who will lead people away from God into great wickedness and ultimately into worship of him. Thirdly, the deluding influence. That great force sent by God on those who have willfully and continually reject him to solidify them in their choice of rejection and thus seal their fate for judgment. And then the comfort and challenge for us as Christians. Comfort of knowing that we are God's and are his for eternity and spared from the wrath and judgment of God. And the challenge is to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. So I trust this glimpse into the end times will help us understand better how it will unfold. 
so that we'll be kept from falling for false reports and false teaching. And we'll be comforted by this truth. And that we'll accept the challenge to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and the word of God and not be swayed from it. Let's take our time of silence as we do every Sunday and just in the quietness of your own heart, open yourself to God and listen. What is God saying to me personally from this this morning? I'll give you just a few moments with God. Amen. Music team, please. Let's stand and sing together.
stand. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we sing glory and honor, power and strength to the singing. 